me now. Hello. Welcome to our lecture for Wednesday, September 3rd. Check you later. And tonight we're going to begin talking about the changes in native communities that resulted from contact with Europeans and how Europeans changed as a result of their encounters with Indians. So we'll cover a few things first about what happened at contact how many Indians there were in the Americas prior to Europeans' arrival is a subject of controversy. A group of scholars known as High Counters has estimated the Native American population in 1491 as between 90 and 112 million people. So when Columbus sailed, more people lived in the Americas than lived in Europe. Central Mexico alone had 25.2 million people, making it the most densely populated place on Earth. North America had between 12 and 20 million people. These scholars base this number on counting backwards from colonial era records and censuses which described how many people died from diseases. Then they make estimates based on proportions of the total population that would have been affected by disease. Then in contrast, a group of low counter scholars believes that the population ranged between 1.15 million and 18 million in the Americas. These folks argue that it is impossible to know how much a depopulation event, like a disease, affected a community. The high counters estimates are more in line with early Spanish observers. A Catholic priest named Bartolomé de las Casas who traveled to the Americas after Columbus, believed that 40 million people died as a result of the European encounter. A biohistorian named Alfred W. Crosby, C-R-O-S-B-Y, introduced the concept of the Columbian Exchange. Crosby thought that, and I quote, the most important changes brought on by the Columbian voyages were biological in nature, end quote. Columbus's voyage influenced world events more than any other intercontinental exchange in world history up to that point. Disease, more so than social or political forces, was the controlling factor of European conquest of the Americas, he argued. Most diseases went from the old world to the new world, especially smallpox, measles, influenza, plague, and typhus, the only exception possibly being syphilis. Food and domestic animal exchanges also had a tremendous impact on population and health in both the old world and the new. The exchange was overwhelmingly one-sided. More people moved from the old world to the new than vice versa. More animals, especially domesticated livestock like cattle, horses, pigs, sheep, and goats, and even honeybees, went from the old world to the new. The New World sent gray squirrels and muskrats back to the Old World. The greatest area of of true exchange, of a balanced exchange, was in food. Europeans brought crops such as wheat, rice, barley, and oats, whereas Native Americans contributed potatoes, corn, and tomatoes. Imagine Italian cuisine without tomatoes or anybody's food without corn. The encounter was a a two-sided story, but you can't underestimate the role of disease in Europeans' eventual control over the hemisphere. So what was the native experience of this encounter? The first and most dramatic one was population collapse. 
from the possibly 15 million people that lived in what is now the U.S. in 1492, only 300,000 native people survived to welcome the 20th century. The impact of disease resulted in political and social destabilization in native communities and a major shift in the balance of power. So, for example, when Spanish explorers came through the southeast, the Cherokees were marginal to the cultures that dominated the region then. And um, those Cherokees that lived in remote mountains where waterborne pathogens could not survive and disease did not spread as easily along spread out villages and river bottoms were spared from the diseases that spread rapidly in larger towns like Kofitacheki and Kusa, which were, mis- were capital cities, essentially, in the southeast at that time. And because so many people died in those two cities, Cherokees wound up becoming a powerhouse in the southeast. One recent book has argued that it wasn't the death rate from disease that was so devastating, because the death rate wasn't that different from the impact that diseases had on the old world, but rather that native populations could not recover due to the successive waves of multiple diseases and due to the colonial strategies of European powers. So we can't necessarily argue that the population collapse was inevitable. Then we have the cultural impact of that population collapse on native people. And we're speculating here because there's not a lot of written records that relate to how Native Americans were affected by disease. But we can imagine that the population collapse affected the oldest people and the youngest people first, and that when people of childbearing age died, there were no more babies born in some places. Naturally, these were oral societies. They didn't record, but instead remembered. And when teachers and elders died, knowledge died with them. Survivors had to adapt to a life stripped of intellectual culture and create something new. People fled the epidemic and began moving around. New settlements were vulnerable, and people began to come together in new Uh, societal formations that resulted in most of the tribes that we know of today in the southeast, such as the Catawba in South Carolina, the Lumbee in North Carolina, and lots of others. Another impact was felt by religious conversion. Indians observed that diseases didn't kill Europeans, and it may have been easier for Indians to believe that missionaries had greater access to spiritual power resulting in their conversion to Christianity. We do know that Europeans believe this. The Puritan settlers in New England observed the Indian villages that had been left empty by disease when they arrived, and they thought that God had cleared the way for settlement. Columbus's voyages initiated a series of exchanges that transformed human history by altering the kind of inequality that human societies generated. Inequality of different kinds has existed since human societies formed thousands of years ago, but Columbus's voyages effectively globalized the property values of Western Europeans. Inequality of different kinds has existed since human societies formed thousands of years ago, but Columbus's voyages effectively globalized the property values of Western Europeans. 
and began to normalize them, so now we tend to take them for granted. If I had to pick one historical moment that most affected how we live today, I would choose Columbus's voyages because it so influenced how people regard wealth and inequality around the world. Embedded in these voyages and the contact events thereafter were ethnocentric viewpoints, ideas about wealth and exercises of power that are important to understand if we want to know why inequality exists in its current form. So the rest of this um, talk is going to deal with the themes of ethnocentricity, wealth, and power. I want to read right now a couple of pages from a great book that's come out a couple of years ago called Slavery in Indian Country. And this is a passage uh, from the beginning of the book. The author is Christina Snyder, who's also a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill. And she describes in this passage um, the death rituals in the Natchez um, Indian chiefdom in what is now Mississippi. She mentions a character called the Great Sun, who is the highest um, leader of this particular city, and his brother, Tattooed Serpent, is the person who has died, and what that this scene this scene describes his uh, funeral. And I want to read it to you as an example of how inequality existed in the Americas long before Columbus arrived, and was also associated with concepts of wealth, of power, and of ethnocentricity. Remember um, the way we talked when our class first met about ethnocentricity and its definition, which is um, essentially that all people will look at other people, other cultures, through the lens of their own values and judge those peoples and cultures accordingly. One of the fundamental assumptions we have in Native American history is that everyone is ethnocentric to some degree or another, and that ethnocentricity influences history, it influences people's actions. So here's the passage from Christina Snyder's book, Slavery in Indian Country. Already the great sun had wailed the death cry, which reverberated across the grand village of the Natchez, as inhabitants joined their chief in mourning the death of his brother. The head servant had heard the cry clearly from where he worked within the house of Tattooed Serpent, just across the public square from the raised mound where the great son lived. The servant glanced down at the litter that held the body of his master. Dressed in regalia benefiting his high station, Tattooed Serpent looked as though he were about to depart on some diplomatic mission. The servant had painted his master's face red with vermilion, placed his best moccasins on his feet, and adorned his head with a crown of swan feathers. Though partially obscured by his clothing, tattooed serpent's skin graphically told of his great deeds in war and of the spiritual power he held by virtue of his noble birth. On the litter, the head servant placed Tattooed Serpent's arms, calumets, and a red cane pole marked with 46 rings, the number of enemies his master had dispatched in war before his death. According to custom, the head servant continued to prepare food for his master. Seeing that Tattooed Serpent did not eat, the servant asked him whether the meal was not to his liking. 
Still, his master did not move or draw breath. Aloud, the servant concluded that his master's days in this world, the realm of human beings, had come to an end. His soul would soon depart for the spirit country. The servant released his own doleful cry, which came back to him in a thousand voices. Funeral arrangements consumed the next few days. Twice a day, retainers of Tattooed Serpent proceeded out into the public square where they performed the death dance before all the people. Among this group were those who had served Tattooed Serpent, including his advisor, doctor, pipe bearer, and the head servant. They were joined by his two wives, both necessarily of low birth, a noble woman who had been a great friend of Tattooed Serpent, and finally a few of the community's older women who rejoiced in the opportunity to bring such honor upon their kin. On the fourth and final day of ceremonies, the master of ceremonies asked the great son for permission to begin the funeral. Although greatly saddened by the death of his brother, the great son found comfort in the fact that so many subjects would serve his spirit. Having received permission from the great son, the master of ceremonies crossed the public square, paused before Tattooed Serpent's house, and saluted him with an honorary shout. He then wailed the death cry, which was repeated by all the Natchez gathered for the ceremony. Those who had participated in the previous day's death dances filed out of Tattooed Serpent's house and took their places in the funeral procession. Holding the body of his dead infant, a man joined their ranks. This child, sacrificed to serve Tattooed Serpent in the spirit world, would raise his father up into the ranks of noblemen. Led by the master of ceremonies, the most senior warrior, and the six temple guardians who carried the litter holding the body, the retainer circled Tattooed Serpent's house three times before solemnly marching out into the square and assuming their prescribed positions. Among the retainers, the noblewoman and Tattooed Serpent's wives enjoyed the highest rank, and they placed their cane mats closest to the temple. The others, including the head servant, fanned out around the path leading to that sacred space. Just as he had practiced during the days of the death dance, the head servant knelt upon his mat. He and all the other retainers released a final death cry. Aided by eight attendants on this honored day, he accepted pills of compacted tobacco and a draft of water. Numbness now spread through the head servant's body, and he became enveloped in darkness as the attendant slipped a deerskin sack over his head. Soon a cord girdled his neck. In an instant he knew it would be over. Three warriors who stood on either side of him would draw the cord, and the servant's days in this world would come to an end. His soul would travel to another realm, yet would remain eternally bound to serve Tattooed Serpent, kinsman of the sun. What Professor Snyder describes in that passage is a funeral ceremony um, for Tattooed Serpent, the brother and chief warrior of this Natchez city. Natchez is spelled N-A-T-C-H-E-Z. And uh, you'll see on the Sakai website an image called tattooedserpent.pdf that depicts this scene of eight people um, bound and held in captivity, essentially awaiting their deaths with hoods over their head, 
as Tattooed Serpent's body is carried throughout the main square of the Natchez Grand Village. The important things to clue into in this passage are the fact that um, the people who took place in the ceremony were of both noble status and non-noble status. So uh, it's mentioned that Tattooed Serpent's wife, two wives, were both of low status. Um, It's likely that it was necessary for Tattooed Serpent to marry wives of lower status so that their families would be elevated in status. It was basically a way of um, promoting class mobility in this particular Natchez community. There's a noble woman who is one of uh, Tattooed Serpent's retainers or one of the people who accompanied him in this uh, journey towards death, or rather journey towards the next world. Um, that person obviously is of, of high birth and had a importance in Tattooed Serpent's life, and so she is included in the ceremony. And then finally, we have a few of the community's older women, as the author says, who rejoice in the opportunity to bring such honor upon their kin. And then we also have the baby um, who was sacrificed to serve Tattooed Serpent in the spirit world. And we have Tattooed Serpent's own servant who um, participates in the funeral. And all of these people as Dr. Snyder is describing to us through telling us this story, all these people are sacrificed, are killed by giving uh, pills, giving them pills of compacted tobacco, basically poisoning them with tobacco. And they, in this uh, ritual life of the Natchez and their beliefs about class and inequality, the fact that they are killed ritually as part of Tattooed Serpent's own funeral is a way to elevate them in status and elevate their families in status in the Natchez society. So this is an example of the way that inequality worked in the Southeast and Southeastern Indian societies prior to the arrival of Europeans. Um, Essentially, all of these people were regarded as as captives or slaves, in a sense, in this moment of Tattooed Serpent's funeral. And at the same time as they are slaves, they their status in society is also elevated by their willingness to sacrifice their own lives and that father's willingness to sacrifice his baby's life for the benefit of this uh, war leader, Tattooed Serpent. I want to read a little bit more uh, an analysis that Professor Snyder says about the meaning of inequality of, of Indian country and how it relates to the American nation. She writes, In a nation passionate about freedom, the standard historical narrative tells us that bondage was an American aberration. Restricted in time and space, slavery characterized the antebellum South, and its victims were African Americans. Captivity, not slavery, was the practice of Indian tribes, and they targeted white women, we're led to believe. But bondage cannot be so neatly confined. 
1725, near what is now Natchez, Mississippi, Tattooed Serpent's nameless Indian servant died not merely because he was loyal, but because he was a slave. In life, the head servant contributed labor and prestige to his master's household. In death, he confirmed the social order that privileged elites like Tattooed Serpent. Captivity in its most exploitative form, slavery, was indigenous to North America. It was widespread, and it took many forms. From tattooed serpent slave, to indentured servants in colonial Philadelphia, to Apache women sold in the mission of San Antonio, the unfree were everywhere. What we learn from this particular example is that inequality existed in the Americas long before Columbus arrived, and it was also associated with wealth, power, and status. Native history teaches us that one of the basic themes of human existence was that equality for some members of society always means inequality for other members of society. Now, Indians change European goals in the Americas and European institutions to meet their own needs. Meanwhile, the European conquest based on Christian ideology, on cultural difference, was based, I'm sorry, the European conquest was based on Christian Christian ideology on a cultural difference between Europeans and Native Americans rather than on a racial difference. And so conquest, I want us to remember, is mostly about ethnocentricity, at least at first, and less about the idea of bi- biological or racial difference. One of the things I'd like for us to understand here is that communities like the Natchez, which we're not necessarily typical of the Southeast, but nonetheless represent a lot of the um, themes of Southeastern Indian life, were not completely different from the ways that Europeans regarded notions of equality and inequality and how they maintained those notions in the United States. Um, I want to start with a giving you an overview of the legal history of colonization. This is a history that's sometimes surprising to people um, and is a little bit complicated, but you can definitely get a sense from it on of um, how ethnocentricity influenced uh, the conquest of the Americas by Europeans. So the basis for Europeans' claims on the Americas was that was the ethnocentric view that Indians were not Christians and were therefore savages. Everything about European society, where politics and religion were closely tied together, dictated that Christian peoples had superior claims on territory over non-Christian peoples. The idea of Christian and savage, and those two categories being distinctly different, dictated politics and social life in European societies, and so they approached conquest the same way. This doctrine of savagery was known as the right of discovery. It gave Christian nations the right to inhabit non-Christian nations in the name of Christianity. Indigenous nations have no claim because they were not Christians. In 1492, when Spain was the first European nation to establish a claim on the Americas, the Pope was Europe's only supranational authority. He was like the United Nations. Of course, there was no such thing as the United Nations then. 
but he was the only um, political authority that all nations of Europe, or anyway all Christian nations, regarded as supreme. In 1493, he gave Spain the authority over the Americas, and in return, Spain had to spread the faith and convert Indians to Christianity. That was their responsibility in return for being granted, essentially, uh, for the Pope granting them all of this land that they so-called discovered. In 1529, then, the Pope authorized European nations to use force against the savages because he saw Indians' conversion as a spiritual necessity. Anything bad that happened was the Indians' fault for refusing to see the light of Christianity and convert. At the same time, Europeans believed that they were acting with benevolence to Indians, Waging war in the name of Christianity was a benefit to Indians because converting them to Christianity saved them from their savage state. Now the reason that the right of discovery is important to understand is because it's this doctrine that legitimates the presence of the United States government on um, American soil, on soil that belonged to other people. So, now, with varying degrees of success, the Spanish effectively controlled most of South America through the 1500s. They established control most firmly in the Caribbean, where 8 million people were wiped out in about 40 years through hard labor as well as disease. And they established control firmly in Central and South America. In North America, they made some inroads, but Indian resistance was in some ways more successful. Although populations in the southeast were devastated by diseases that the Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto, de Soto is spelled D-E, capital S-O-T-O, although native populations in the southeast were devastated by diseases that Hernando de Soto brought with him in the 1540s when he explored the territory, Indian groups in what is now Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina fought the Spanish and resisted incorporation into Spanish Catholic missions. When I mentioned earlier that Indians changed European goals in the region and European institutions to meet their own needs, Indian resistance in the southeast is one example of this. So, for example, the Guale Indians, uh, Guale is spelled G-U-A-L-E-S. The Guales, for example, were a confederation of Indian groups that inhabited the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. Spain had constructed a mission in their territory to incorporate the Guales as laborers for the Spanish colony that they were trying to establish. But the Guales wouldn't stay in the mission to meet Spain's labor's demands because their own subsistence patterns required them to move around. Instead, they redefined the mission to meet their own needs as a temporary residence where they could come for a period of time because um, of farming. Uh, They could farm at the mission, and it fulfilled uh, that part of their economic activity. Um, But they didn't want to stay there all the time, and they were also convinced that the smallpox epidemics that ravaged their people were evidence of the priests using spiritual power to kill them. Further, the priests discouraged polygamy, and to the Guales, 
eradicating polygamy undermined their kinship obligations, their obligations to family, to um, provide for family, and to provide for the most people possible within their society. Eventually, the Guales destroyed the mission churches and killed the priests, and Spain abandoned its coastal missions in South Carolina and Georgia. So this demonstrates how Indians used their power to change Spanish goals and colonization. Now, many years later, well, not that many years, about um, 40 or 50 years later, Spanish power in the southeast began to unravel when England expressed an interest in the Americas. English interest in America was, was fueled by hatred of Spain. Spain was the leading Catholic power. England had a Protestant queen at the time, and their dispute became a religious crusade. The mid-16th century, the mid-1500s, saw naval wars between England and Spain, and this was extended into colonization of North America. The right of discovery gave North America to the Spanish, but the English argued that simply laying claim to the land wasn't enough to rule it. You also had to occupy it and to control its resources. This doctrine became known as the right of conquest. England didn't want to upset Spain too much, so at first they only laid claim to territory Spain hadn't already occupied. To further justify their presence in America, England expanded on the right of conquest and the use of force. The doctrine of Indian savagery, developed by Catholic martyr Thomas More in England in 1516, stated that, one, taking land from savages is not illegal because they did not use land the way God intended. Uh, More articulated that God intended land to be farmed in the English manner, with plows, draft animals, fenced fields, fertilizer, and so forth. And because Indians were not farming that way, they were not farming the way God intended them to. The second principle of the doctrine of Indian savagery was that people who did not use land as God intended had no right, had no civil right to the land, but they did have a natural right, which is an inferior right because they only use the land on the surface. They don't subdue it and control it uh, the way God instructs Adam to in the Bible, but they use it as animals would use it, taking things off the surface of it. Um, Moore had never visited the Americas and was obviously not aware of the ways in which Indians uh, actively farmed and arguably subdued and controlled the land as well as using the surface of the land. The third principle behind the doctrine of Indian savagery was that America was an empty place because Indians didn't use the land the way God intended, meaning that they are savages and they have no rights to the land. So the doctrine of Indian savagery helps convince English um, colonizers and people result consequently all over the world that the people who lived on this land were savages and and therefore their conquest was justified and legal. When I said earlier that the United States is based, occupation is of the Americas is based on the right to discovery, um, it's also based on the doctrine of Indian savagery, which when 
the United States or what would become the United States defeated Great Britain in the American Revolution, the um, Treaty of Paris transferred Britain's right to the Americas to the United States, and um, that right to the Britain's right to the Americas was based on this legal history of the right of discovery, the right of conquest, and then the doctrine of Indian savagery. So England exercised its doctrines in what became known as Virginia, well north of the Spanish territory in the Americas. England established the Roanoke Colony in the 1580s on the coast of North Carolina, but it was not successful. They established Jamestown in 1607 in the middle of the Powhatan chiefdom, the indigenous group of people known as the Powhatan. Powhatan was the name of their leader, and that's how the English uh, came to call them. Initially, Jamestown was founded to promote trade with Indians, not as a colony or permanent settlement per se. Powhatan, the leader, understood this and sought to use the English as new trading partners, not necessarily as adversaries. He wanted to promote his power and his wealth using the English. But the English didn't understand anything about native trade and native kinship. From Powhatan's point of view, in order to trade with another community, you had to belong to the kinship system of that community and they had to belong to yours. So essentially in order to trade with someone you had to adopt them into your family. And without membership in the kinship system, without being family, you were essentially an enemy. Now Powhatan had exercised this principle in his own conquest of other tribes in his region. There were actually 30 separate communities in the Powhatan chiefdom and he acquired 25 of them through conquest. And this is a political system. Powhatan's political system was based on the idea of reciprocity. He uh, convinced these uh, communities that he would provide them military security in exchange for their subordination. He collected tribute or taxes and redistributed uh, his wealth to to um, his to his kin, to his adopted kin, and to the chiefs of these tribes, these communities within his larger chiefdom. Now, the English had a very different idea about trade. Trade was not about reciprocity, about providing one thing in exchange for another, but about ma- obtaining and maintaining the upper hand so that they could control the trade. John Smith, you've all heard of him, Um, as a military leader of Jamestown, wanted to be unpredictable and keep uh, the Powhatan Indians off balance so he could control them. And John Smith's behavior irritated Powhatan. Powhatan, by the way, is spelled P-O-W-H-A-T-A-N. So John Smith's behavior irritated Powhatan, and Powhatan had Smith captured, held him prisoner, and put him through a series of ceremonies. Uh, in this ceremony, he took him all over Powhatan's chiefdom, kind of gave him a tour, grand tour of the region, showed John Smith his power, showed John Smith his wealth, all the people that were subject to Powhatan's authority. And then at the end of this tour, Smith was brought before Powhatan, and another ceremony was conducted where warriors threatened to kill him. 
Now here's where Pocahontas enters the picture. Pocahontas, being the, the daughter of Powhatan, threw herself over John Smith, and then the ceremony ended. Now we remember this um, incident as evidence of Pocahontas's love or attachment, at least, to John Smith. That's the way John Smith described it. But what was happening there was a ceremony of incorporation. Powhatan saw John Smith as a kind of war chief of Jamestown, and Powhatan was trying to make Jamestown part of his chiefdom and give them the obligations and benefits of members in membership in the chiefdom, the same way all of the other communities that Powhatan and conquered had obligations and benefits in belonging to the chieftain. Um, now this worked for a time, but eventually the Virginia Company resisted the reciprocal systems of people they saw as savages, and they had a real trouble profiting from trade with Indians in that region. They struggled for 11 years, totally dependent upon Indians' generosity, until tobacco emerged as a profitable crop in 1618 in Virginia. Tobacco had already done well in the Caribbean, and tobacco planters made a fortune there, so they decided to try it in Virginia. When it worked, Jamestown, the trading post, became Jamestown, the plantation. And it was fairly quickly thereafter that the English were able to accomplish their goals in the trade, which was to control it um, and maintain the upper hand rather than treat it as a reciprocal arrangement the way that Powhatan had. Nevertheless, through this story, we see how Indians' attitudes about trade had influenced the course of England's economic plans in the region. Initially, Jamestown began as a as an effort to control trade with Indians, to maintain the upper hand, but Indians effectively forestalled that goal for a number of years, and it was only the accident of tobacco success that enabled Jamestown to achieve its goals. Um, in the Americas. So, after tobacco was was successful, the English could now trade profitably with Indians and could learn to live with and negotiate with them. With tobacco success, land acquisition and settlement became the priority of the English government. English settlers, not Indians, were then the main suppliers in this new scheme. So, it was more and more important that England move people over to the Americas to supply England and the rest of the world with the kind of goods and crops that could be produced in Virginia. Therefore, the English became very aggressive about claiming territory uh, because they needed land to put these folks on and they needed land to grow the crops they wanted to grow. And Indians accordingly defended themselves against the incursions of settlers. A pattern developed in Virginia and the Carolinas between a kind of uh, peaceful period of peaceful negotiation and a period of war. From the English standpoint, negotiation was cheaper and safer if Indian nations were powerful and independent. 
I'm sorry, from the native viewpoint, negotiation was cheaper and safer if Indian nations were powerful and independent, like the Powhatans had been. Uh, the Powhatans forced the English to recognize their land rights, and the English did recognize them even if it was an inferior right. But if the balance of power shifted towards the English, England would go to war to gain land, and the war was just. Again, it was it was a good war because they were subduing non-Christian peoples. The competitive focus between native people and English people, therefore, was land. Since both Indians and English were farmers, it led England to a policy of land acquisition, Indian exclusion from any kind of um, you know citizenship or membership, and the growing English colony, and ultimately it led to Indian removal, which we'll talk more about later in the semester. The conflicts between the English and Indians intensified, and they had their roots in cultural issues. From Powhatan's perspective, Virginia was not playing its proper role as a reciprocal community um, that subjected itself to Powhatan's control, and accordingly, Powhatans attacked Virginia in 1622 and 1644. They did not want to wipe out the colony, though, just to punish them and push them back onto territory they were supposed to use. But from the English perspective, they were the ones who were the dominant group. They were civilized, they were Christians, and they did not believe that they should be subordinate to savages. The English believed that they should set the agenda and Indians should obey, but that's not always what happened. The message of these examples today is that the Powhatans, the Gwales, the English, and the Spanish were all using power and wealth in different ways to achieve their own goals, their own political and economic goals. How they used power and wealth was dictated by their ethnocentric attitudes. The Powhatans, for example, believed that Jamestown should operate trade in a reciprocal fashion, Jamestown believed that the Powhatans should um, yield their their goods and products to English control over the trade because the English were Christians and the Powhatans were not, for example. Um, accordingly, Indians in the South affected the English and Spanish goals of conquest, and the way that the conquest happened was not inevitable. The Guales, for example, in their refusal to submit to Spanish Christian authority, derailed completely the Spanish ability to establish any kind of permanent settlement north of Florida in the south. Um, and in this sense, history might have turned out very differently had the Guales decided to uh, spare the priests' lives and not destroy the mission. The evidence of depopulation of Indians in the Americas also demonstrates that conquest itself was not inevitable. Had Indian communities been able to recover their numbers in the wake of epidemic diseases, as just like European populations had recovered after their own epidemics, this whole story might have turned out very, very differently. But because of depopulation 
and uh, the tactics of conquest and the back and forth um, of patterns of, of war and peaceful negotiation that groups like the Powhatan practiced. European conquest uh, in the Americas became a fact. Mm 